evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. Mahoning Drive-In Radio, your old friend Virgil back once again for another exciting episode of the podcast. As you guys know, the only podcast dedicated to the love and revival of our beloved drive-in culture. Joined, as always, by my co-hosts, we got our general manager extraordinaire, Mark, in the house. Say hello, my friend. Hello! And we also have the king of the Mahoning, Jeff, owner, projectionist. Say hello, my friend. Yowzer! And uh, we're really excited. We got a great one for you guys tonight. A lot of the feedback that we got in that 100th episode celebration was letting us know how much you guys appreciate these owner-operator interviews that we do and how much you guys appreciate and love them and look forward to them. Well, tonight we uh, jump into that. And the nice thing about this owner series, it shined a light on the eclectic bunch of, of passionate business owners Uh, And really dreamers that make up the cinematic landscape that we shine a light on here. But we wanted to widen that spotlight a little bit to include the rich world of indoor 35 millimeter houses that are contributing to the preservation and bringing some killer programming as well, which we love. And uh, the stunning Barrymore Film Center in Fort Lee, New Jersey, is beyond dedicated to presenting classic repertory films, documentaries, indies. Cinema gems from all over the world in digital, 35mm, and 70mm. So we are beyond blessed to be joined by the executive director, Mr. Nelson Page, uh, who not only matches our passion for cinema, he uh, has had a long career running theaters, both indoor and outdoor. He loves talking about movies and Fort Lee and the history that Fort Lee has as the birthplace of the American motion picture industry. So without further ado, let's welcome the man himself. Welcome to the show, Mr. Nelson Page. You're very, very kind. And, you know, I I had to search around. I'm saying, are they talking about me? (laughs) (laughs) It's always so hard to sum up somebody's, you know, uh, their thing. But for you... When we met, when you met Mark, it's like one thing was very clear. You are one of us, such a passionate character, somebody who loves what he does and loves movies and cinema, which is really the heart of this podcast and venture that we're in. Somebody once asked me, well, why did you want to get into this industry? And I, and I did it very early on. The first assumption was by so many people, oh, well, your family's in this business. Said, oh, no. My father was a mechanic. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If he knew what I was doing, because he, he died he died in his uh, 50s. And if he looked around and saw what I had done, you know, as a career, he would have said, are you out of your mind? I mean, he could never, because, <laughs> you know, the key to any anybody going into business, whether it be, a, you know, a dry cleaner, you know, a movie theater, a car wash, you can't be risk aversive. You have to know that if I'm going to put in a film and Warner Brothers wants a $20,000 advance, I'm going to do it. Because that yeah. could make my summer. That could make my Christmas. That could make my year. So you can't say, oh, gee, I can't do that. And, 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 and you know, it, it's a little bit easier now because they'll give films away to just about anybody. All right? It, it, the, days, the days of blind bidding are gone. The days of, you know, of, of booking clearance are gone. The days of product splitting are gone pretty much. 
but yeah. it's still it's still an issue that you're still trying to you know vie for your market share. You know, at the Barrymore Film Center, you know, it, it's a repertory theater. Um, and, and one of our board members said to me, said, well, you know, uh, you're still you're still trying to get your piece of that market. There is no market. There is no repertory market in, in northern New Jersey. We're building that market because right. it's everybody's so used to, you know, looking on Netflix or, you know, or even maybe even going to New York City. But, you know, we've created a, a, a very unique situation here, you know, thanks to, you know, the mayor of Fort Lee, Mark Sokolich, who had this vision. He said, you know, let's let's have let's have a theater. Don't you think we should have a theater? This is the the town that you know was the birthplace of the American motion picture industry. And from the early 1900s to 1919, 1920, that was Fort Lee, the motion picture capital of the world. And somebody yeah. said, "Oh, that's right." You know, before Hollywood, there was no before. There was no Hollywood. Well, you know, the Fort Lee, the film town, was the precursor to Hollywood. In fact, there's, there's a picture that hangs in the hallway off to my office, and it's two guys standing there in front of a plow. And one is Carl Lemley, and the other is his son. And they're breaking ground for at that day, that not time, was the largest movie studio in the world. And they yeah. built it in 1915, and within 24 months, they picked up and moved out to California. Why? You know, people go, oh, you know, because of the sunshine. No, it wasn't because of the sunshine. It was because Thomas Edison got greedy. And the Edison's Patents Trust, if you didn't pay your VIG, you didn't pay that royalty, they busted up your set, took your film, and that was the end of it. So, <laughs> yeah. Being, yeah, being two hours from, from, from Mexico seems to be, uh, you know, a very, uh, a very attractive way to do business, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's... It, but the Barrymore Film Center, you know, is the right thing at the right time. And, you know, I'm blessed to be in the position that I'm in. And uh, thank you guys for recognizing the value of what we're trying to do there. Uh, well, I mean, you said it. It's all about building that community. And the Mahoning is a perfect example of that, you know, where if you go out on a limb and really put your heart into something, they will come, and there's a big crossover with fans of what we do and fans of what you do. But it's a great segue there. When did the Barrymore come to be? Is this a recent venture? Is this a grand historic? This people go. Did you build this building, or was it? Here? I said no, no, no. This was this was purpose built, and right. and again, you know, this was to bring a cultural icon to the community, actually to the region, the um, Fort Lee Film Commission was established by a gentleman named Tom Myers, probably in the late 1990s. And uh, the film commission was established you know, to bring film production back to Fort Lee, whether it be commercials or they were doing a lot of law and order SVUs and things like that. And, uh, you know, Tom and the team were working very diligently to bring people to Fort Lee. And uh, at that time, I had several theaters in the, in the area. I mean, at my Zenith, I had 12 locations in four different states. And around wow. Fort Lee, I had, I had one in Teaneck, a four-screen theater and a three-screen theater in Guttenberg, New Jersey, which is the second smallest town in, in, the, in the whole state. But we had this great little theater that, that was doing a million and a half dollars a year. I had put a theater organ in there. We were doing a lot of silent films. And Tom called me up and he said, you know, you seem to be as wacky as we are. We want, we, we want you to bring you on board. And within a year, I became the chairman of the film commission. And uh, over that 20-year period, film became a very popular subject matter for, you know, people rediscovering the history of that community. And, you know, with the new administration developing a vacant 16-acre site in town, uh, they made a wonderful agreement with the developer. And the developer gave us the property. 
also gave us a couple of million dollars towards the project. And the wow. town turned around and they, they, they put out a bid for almost $14 million to build the rest of the building. And now the mayor looked at us and said, okay, now it's time for you guys to program this, to make it a shine and, and to make it something that everybody wants to come to and be a part of. And um, unfortunately, Tom had a, um, a serious health issue, which uh, prevented him from going forward. And um, they hired me as the design consultant to hire the architect and build the building and start with the programming. And then uh, they asked me to be executive director. And my first inclination, and uh, actually the first three times they asked me, I said no. <laughs> I, retired, I retired at 59. I sold off whatever I had because I saw where the where the industry was going. Hard to make right. a buck. You know, you, you, then you they had, you pull had me back in. <laughs> you had a three million dollar a year payroll, you know, and when you can't make that payroll, you know, I mean, yeah, a lot of part timers, some full timers, but it's a lot of money. And you know, in the old days, if you count on your summers, you know. Your June, your, your, actually your May, your June, July, and somewhat you know of August, and at least yeah. November through December, and that whole model changed. Yeah, and once what that is model changed, anymore? Yeah, and I'm sitting there saying, Jesus, I'm working for a whole year, and the manager of my Matamora Sevenplex is making more money than me. You know, I mean, how do how do you how do you rationalize that? You know, right. and at that time when you see if there's an opportunity to sell, an opportunity not to renew a lease, whatever the case may be. And I started to, you know, what my accountant would uh, refer to as a soft landing. <laughs> it took about a year, but we did what we had to do. And, uh, and I was very happy to work within the framework of what we were doing in Fort Lee. But, you know, things change. And, uh, you know, because I, I actually live 60 miles from the BFC. And, uh, you know, because the most, the most common question always asked about the Barrymore is why named after the Barrymore family? Well, because they lived in Fort Lee. John, Ethel, and Lionel Barrymore lived uh, with their father, uh, Maurice, in Fort Lee. And we thought this was a way to give them the due tribute that they should have had and did have, certainly by making their first films there in Fort Lee uh, before going to the Broadway stage and then to Hollywood. And uh, actually on the corner opposite the theater was um, John Barrymore's first acting gig and a program and a, and a play called Man of the World that was actually directed by his father. So there's history all, all around us. You know, where did D.W. Griffith make his first films? Where did Max Sennett make his first films? Where was Mabel Norman in that particular shot? Where did Alice Giebel-Shea, the first woman director in cinema history, have her studio? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's just overflowing with culture. It makes yeah. sense to have such a uh, a place in that location. And again, talk about right place, right time, even though you were out of the game, for this thing to come to fruition and have the opportunity to do something like this, you know, it's, I say it, it's it's a gift that you're there. It really does take that heart behind it. And it was certainly the right decision. Now, going back a little bit, I mean, we're talking about the Barrymore, but we want to focus on you as well. How did you get into this game? I mean, it seems like you've been all over the map for years. How did you come to get into the, the movie exhibition industry? It was interesting because I never went to college. I wound up, you know, when I graduated high school, I didn't have the college mentality. And I actually went to the superintendent of schools who I knew fairly well, a gentleman named Dave Dervitz. You know, you, know you, you, you never truly die, you know, when people still mention your name. So it gives me great pleasure to mention his name. And um, I said, look, coach, here's the deal. I don't want to go to college. You got anything for me to do? And he goes, well, you know, we don't have a budget. 
he says, but you know, we got a $50,000 grant to put together a TV studio. Do you know anything about that? I said, oh yeah, which I didn't. And um, <laughs> I actually went to the Sony showroom in Manhattan and I picked up a three day course for 150 bucks. And I figured out what I had to figure out. And they hired me for $3,400 for the year, believe it or not. And I ran their little TV studio and I took over their AV program. And so I, at 17, I graduated as a student. And three months later, they hired me as, as the district media specialist, whatever that was in those days. And I did that uh, probably, you know, 17, 18, 19, probably 20. You know, so I was there four or five years. I met my wife there, who's a student teacher. And I probably thought I was going to be there for the rest of my life. But, you know, once you're married, and I got married young, I was, I was 21. Um, I thought, well, you know, here's an opportunity to, you know, uh, maybe make a little extra money. And uh, on a warm summer's night, you know, I said, uh, you know, I'm going to go get some ice cream. And I went up to the local A&P. And there's the Fairview Cinemas. And on the marquee, it says, help wanted. And I thought, how cool would that be working in the movie theater, you know? Hmm. So, you know, yeah. I, was always a big, I was always a big fan of, of film. And, you know, I always, you know, love the lore of the movie theater. I love the feel. I love the smell. I love the sensation. You know, movie theaters, you know that better than anybody. They have that great smell, you know? Oh, yeah. And it only attracts a certain kind of a person. Just like the, the popcorn at a drive-in has a certain smell. Unlike any other smell anywhere else, you know? It's, it's funny. Yeah. Drive-in popcorn is always just a little bit better. I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> but I, I, I went there. I took a job as an usher at uh, $1.75 an hour. Within probably three weeks, four weeks, I was the assistant manager. And then within another month, I decided this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Very simple. Amazing. And within 24 months, uh, we uh, acquired our first theater. Because the gentleman who was the manager, a gentleman named uh, Dennis Lynch, and a couple of my high school buddies, Kevin Friel and and, and Mitchell DeVoskin, we pooled our resources. We put together about $150,000, and uh, we, we acquired our first theater in Teaneck, New Jersey. And, you know, you're supposed to struggle, you know, you're supposed to really, you know, if you're supposed to be, be you know, ki- you know, killing it for every nickel you made. Well, I wound up with a county exclusive of Moonraker. Oh, wow. And we, 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 we took in, we took in six figures. In wow. the first month. Amazing. And of course, like, like money and like any enterprising mid 20 year old, we ran out and bought two more theaters. <laughs> <laughs> And were those uh, single screen theaters at the time, or were those? Oh, they were all single. The, the, the Teaneck facility was a thousand seats, a thousand seats, oh. and you know, oh yeah, a thousand seats. You know, twenty thousand square feet. So um, you know, there, there were some rough times, and then I hit upon the formula. The formula was, you know, after because you get a big film in the summertime, you think that's going to go on, and I learned that once September came, nothing. So, um, but by the time we got to January and February, we, we went to a dollar fifty policy, all seats, all times, and then that's what made us our first million. The dollar wow. fifty policy. At that point, we had a half dozen theaters. We ran that policy in, in all the theaters, and you know we changed every week, and we made a lot of money. But in that period of time, what happened? Everybody went from one screen to four screens to six screens to eight the boom screens. Boom of the multiplex. That's right. And I'm sitting there with Thousand Seat Theater, you know, I mean, and I made the big mistake. I was in love. I was in love with my Thousand Seat Theater. 
I was in love with my, <laughs> love with my 1200 seat theater. I was in love with my 1400 seat theater. I was in love with my 900 seat. And you know, that's what killed me. And I learned a very valuable lesson. You can't fall in love to the point of being blind to you know your business needs, you know, are and should be. And uh, so on my 30th birthday, I filed for a multi-million dollar bankruptcy. How about that? On my 30th birthday. And I remember the bankruptcy judge looked at me and goes, well, you got two choices here. You can either run away. He says, because business isn't for everybody. He says, or you take this as a very well-paid education and you go back into it, you lick your wounds and you make it happen. But this time with a very expensive education. And they did. And um, that, that's, we, you know, we went on from that point forward. And it, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It really was because I learned a lot. I learned a yeah. lot. I was embarrassed. Sometimes things happen for a reason, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I and, and you know what? If a location didn't work, I cut it loose, you know. And I didn't, I let, didn't let it strangle me. And we wound up, you know, building a very, very nice business. You know, we had theaters in Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, I had them in Lancaster, uh, Easton, Quaker Town. You know, I mean, it was, it was a great, uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great uh, place to, you know, to run movie theaters. Um, I had the uh, seven screens in Matamoros, Pennsylvania, which was great. I had the uh, sprinkling of theaters in New York State, uh, one in Massachusetts and Fall River. You know, and then in the middle of all this, you know, uh, we wound up with a, with a uh, we wound up with a drive-in in, in uh, Paramus, New Jersey. And uh, it was one of the most successful theaters that I ever had. The problem was the clientele was rough. And oh, we were, yeah. The area, you we, mean? Yeah. Yeah, not necessarily Paramus, but we were getting a rougher clientele from surrounding areas. Right. And, you know, there was, you know, the first thing that happened is uh, in, 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 a, in a very large tropical storm that came through, I lost uh, the top left-hand corner of the screen. <laughs> they oh, saw that two pounds over. You know how that is. That, that the, so we had a construction company. All of a sudden, my profit for the year went out the window because I had to replace half the screen. And then, yeah. uh, you know, we were, we were replacing toilets and, and we were replacing uh, sinks because people were using them as diving boards and there was some gunplay. <laughs> and was, oh, yeah. And, and, of course, we had a theater in Livingston, New Jersey, which was about, I don't know, 25 miles south of Paramus. And we were the first theater in the area to use, you know, FM transmitted sound for your car. You turn on your radio, everything's full. I'm driving up and all of a sudden I'm hearing the Empire Strikes Back on my radio and I'm 20 miles away. So somebody turned up the game on the transmitter. Wow. <laughs> Took over the area. Oh, yeah, yeah. The FCC is news. So. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's yeah. that storied history, you know, that really explains oh, yeah. a lot, you know. And it, uh, yeah. it, it gives the motivation that, you know, if you stick with your guns, if you learn from those mistakes, uh, it, it can benefit you. Talking about the inspiration... As kids, we all fell in love with the drive-in. We fell in love with movies. It's why we're here. What was your uh, experience like as a youngster, whether with indoor cinema or drive-ins? Honestly, what's interesting is that, and I, I can't tell the story anywhere except here. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, I'm the big theater guru. I'm a guy who, you know, has had to restore, do acoustical, and this and that, blah, blah, blah. But... All my early films, we saw to drive it. Yep. Yeah. Ben Hur, drive it. Lawrence of Arabia, drive it. How the West so, is one, drive it. We yeah. weren't in any hard stops. 
I mean, my parents took us there. We didn't go to a hard top theater until we could do it on our own as kids. You know, eighth grade, freshman high school. Then once we were going out and doing this on our own, there was a theater in the town next door to us, the Palace Theater in Bergenfield, New Jersey. And uh, we used to walk there. And I remembered, you know, sitting there and watching the sand pebbles. I was 13 years old when I came home because I watched it two times. My mother goes to me, goes, the sand pebbles? With Steve McQueen? I said, yeah. And you sat through that three times. I said, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff told the you story know? of seeing sand pebbles at the drive-in, right, Jeff? Exactly. Yeah, the uh, Super Skyway drive-in uh, just outside of Allentown. Oh, yeah. wow. Allentown, Pennsylvania. Not Allentown, New Jersey. Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. Look, I, I, look I, <laughs> my first foray into Pennsylvania exhibition. Uh, and theatrical presentation was the State Theater in Eastern Pennsylvania. Hell yeah! Which was a beautiful theater. The town and the county and the state had put a lot of money into it, you know, several millions of dollars, and they had a very progressive board of directors. And uh, we went to Catasauqua to buy some old projector parts, and somebody said, oh, you should see this theater. We walked in there just as they were closing their doors. And I said, What's, what happened? Well, you know, they, they didn't get the audiences that they wanted to attract. Uh, Easton, which I always thought was a beautiful town, and now it's a booming town, uh, yeah. was having, you know, some growing pains. Uh, you know, they couldn't get anybody downtown. They couldn't develop an audience. And because they had so much competition with, you know, whether it be Lafayette or Lehigh or any of those colleges with these huge field houses and theaters, and they were showing Phantom of the Opera touring shows and Johnny Mathis and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I'm sitting there with 1,500 seats. I'm trying to develop an audience, and I can't charge more than 30 bucks because everybody's undercutting me. And I'm thinking, you know, let's bring in movies. And we brought in film, and we were using the old carbon arc projectors, and I was running the projectors, and I love carbon arc, by the way, just so you know. And it's just, uh, it's just, but you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really get that audience. You know, I had a five-year deal with a one-year kick-out. We put a lot of money into the place, and it just couldn't. But my time there was was so beautiful because it was such a lovely theater. It really, really was. We had uh, uh, Ray Charles who came in, Mary Chapin Carpenter. You know, we had the Smothers Brothers. I mean, we we had, you know, big. But it just, I couldn't charge enough to make it to make it profitable. And, uh, you know, after the first year, I said, this, this isn't going to work for me. But you sat with the town. He said, look, you're going to always have to know that we paid the back bills. You guys can, can operate. And I'm very proud of the fact that that facility is still there by the oh, yeah. one year that I spent there just keeping, keeping the place alive, you know. And for anybody who ever goes there, it is one of the most beautiful theaters that, you know, I ever operated. It really, really is. Um, it's and really you did a, your a part. Thing. You did your part to keep it alive, you know. That's the yeah, beautiful yeah. thing. And I lost $140,000 that year. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, a lesson learned, right? We'll chalk it up. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd, love, I'd love to tell you about the ones I made money in, but there, there are those that you didn't make any money in either. The live ones with film never, you know, were always touch and go. Because, yeah. you know, people, it's a very odd combination. We, at the Barrymore, we do a very nice combination of film and live. It really works out well for us. But... Some of these older, larger facilities, it was it was always tough. It really, really was. Yeah, it's that balance. Uh, well, I'm curious about your run with the Paramus. So how did that end for you? Or yeah, I, Obviously, the Paramus drive is not there anymore. Well, what happened was I was I was the tenant of Macy's Incorporated because they owned the property at the time. And, wow. uh, you know, we were, we were on a year-to-year -year lease. And um, 
I went back to them after probably two years and said, you know, either you're going to help me, you're going to let me get to go to a percentage rent, or you can have it back. I said, because I'm getting killed here. I said, we're making money on the books. I said, but, you know, every time I turn around, I mean, <laughs> one day, well, you had the little kiosk, you know, where people come in, you, you, you're, you're selling tickets, you're bringing, you know, carload after carload, and somebody in the middle of the night took their car back into the, to the little kiosk, knocked it over. I mean, all the electric, it, it, it just, it just got, uh. it just got very rough. It got very rough. You know, you come, you come in the next day, all the windows, the candy, uh, you know, uh, area, you know, candy stand, we were all busted out. You know, stuff uh, like that. You never and, knew what to expect when you're coming in. You never knew what to expect. And again, we had a really nice clientele, but there's also a rough element that that was coming in, and it just wasn't going to be for, it wasn't going to be, you know, a long-term thing for me because, you know, all of a sudden, in that, in that particular time, I had, you know, eight or nine locations. And this one was the one that was, you know, gobbling up all my time and causing me all the grief. And it yeah. just, you know, whatever we took out in profit went back in for repairs. And, you know, that was, a, so they, they, they actually took it back. Uh, they leveled it and they uh, made additional parking out of it. Wow. So pretty much your run there was the last run there. Correct. Correct. Wow. Correct. Correct. When was that? That was uh, 1979, 1980, 1981. So yeah, that would have been uh, one of the early big waves of driving. Yeah. And the one thing that I have left from it is I have the uh, I have the scope lens from the number two projector that sits on my desk, which is about two two feet long. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And was that a was that a single screener? And and how big was the screen, if you recall? Oh, the uh, screen was uh, forty by eighty. It was huge. It was single screen. Not bad. No, no. It was, you know, right off of Route 4, you pulled right in, you had some trees that, you know, gave you some light protection. You know, I mean, and, and in the beginning, you know, Friday nights, we would do some, you know, some pyrotechnics. We put a little uh, playground out in front, in front of the screen. You know, people would come very family oriented, really enjoyed, you know, seeing people bring their children, you know, because my experience in driving was great. You know, I went to the 303 drive-in, Orangetown, New York, rather, and the, um, the uh, Nyack Drive-In, really great, great places, and uh, the Nyack Drive-In actually was um, was a it was a brand new facility. And all of a sudden, one day, gone, gone, it just gone. That was at a time actually when I was in high school. You know, I was in high school, you know, 69, 70, 71, gone. First of all, the drive-ins went, and then and then Palisades Amusement Park closed down, <laughs> and that was the end of it. Yeah, let's shift it back to the Barrymore. So what's the layout like at the Barrymore? You said you do live shows as well, so I take it stage area in front of the screen? What we did was we wanted to make sure that we had enough, how should I say, flexibility. I have a 45-foot wide stage, 25-foot deep. Uh, we have a 20-by-40-foot um, screen, which rolls up, rolls down. We're, we're pumping about 4,000 watts of sound through the building, you know, all Dolby Digital. Uh, yeah. We are equipped for 35, 70, and 4K digital. So we can pretty much do everything but Super 8. How often do you get the opportunity for the 70 mil? Or is it because you have the 70 that whenever these pop up, you have the opportunity? Well, you know, well, this particular Sunday, we're running Dark Crystal, right? because it's a, it's, it's a mag stereo print. So uh, this will be the first one running mag, a mag print. 
and, and we actually tested it today and it really sounded good. Uh, last week, uh, we finished up uh, the, the uh, New Jersey 70 millimeter run of the Napoleon, which we yep. did very, very well with. But a couple of months before that, we actually ran the 2001 Space Odyssey and sold out. Come on. What a dream yeah, so come true. What a dream. It, it, it is. It is because the depth, the color, I mean, the sound, it's, it's really fairly spectacular. People go, really? Is 70 such a big deal? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. And um, it is a dream. And we do a lot of 35. You know, and of course, today, you know, going back to the Lafayette Theater, um, which, which was our flagship theater, which was up in Rockland County, New York, we did a big screen classic series on Saturday mornings where we would get four or 500 people. And in those days, when they had a new DVD release, they would strike a new print and for you know promotional reasons. And so we were getting, name of film, Portrait of Jenny, a beautiful new print. Uh, we were a Phantom of the Opera. We did a Phantom series where we did the, uh, the Herbert Lom 62 version. We did the 43 Nelson Eddy version. You know, we did we did the uh, 1925 silent version, and and every one of these prints were pristine, gorgeous. You know that 1962 hammer color, God, it was great. It's hard now to get those pristine prints, you know. And and a lot of collectors like myself wound up selling a lot of it and and, and parting out their collections. I had 67 prints, probably a half a dozen of them were in IB Tech. All right, they had a beautiful Beckett in IB Tech, Man for All Seasons IB Tech. Zulu and IP Tech. I mean, the color. Yes, I mean, and I sold everything. Everything. Because my thought was, where, A, am I going to store all this stuff? And B, you know, 35 is, you know, done. Toast. Yeah. Gone. But who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? That's the thing we've talked about when we chatted on the phone is, you know, the collection, the things that come around. It's That was the case with a lot of those vinyl collectors, too. They just didn't know. Yeah. They just, they, way yeah. to know but yeah what a time what a time to be alive you know well, it is i mean and i gotta i gotta tell you the, the, the projectors that we have we purchased that twice i'm sorry the 35 70s we paid twenty thousand for both of them i could yeah. probably get 35 for each one now because all of a sudden there's been such a boomerang effect you know for 35 and for 70 and uh all of a sudden you know because of christopher nolan and tarantino and others we're just, you know, making, you know, these, these, these uh, 70 films, you know, I mean, obviously once the Academy Award nominations are out, I'm going to grab a print of Oppenheimer and run oh, that yeah. for a week. But uh, that, that's, that, that gives me that flexibility. And remember, I have an eightplex one block away from me. So I have to be on my toes, you know, and, and I, you know, I don't look at them as competition because they don't do what I do and I, and I can't do what they do. You offer something totally unique with that format. Yeah. We feel that. Yeah. And I mean, until yeah. recently, that was the case for us. We had a six screen multiplex right up the street from us. And we yeah. never saw that as competition because they were showing new films on digital and we were showing old films on film. Yeah. Different yeah. And then how about you guys? I mean, uh, I know when it comes to 35 print, I know you deal with collectors as well as I do deal with collectors from time to time. But, you know, are you finding, you know, it hard to get a, a clean 35? I mean, for me, last last March, you know, I got a print and I said, okay, you know, is it A print, B print, C print? What's the quality? Oh, it's, a, it's like a B minus print. It was a print of um, The Quiet Man. Yeah. Holy cow. It was a, it was in ghastly shape. It was a D, it was a D quality print. I was yeah. embarrassed to run the thing. 
But, you know, I mean, once you advertise the promotion. We get yeah. that all the time, you know, where it's sometimes yeah. we don't know what we're getting until it gets to us yeah. just because the grading process is kind of still backwards a bit and there's no real kind of uh, gauge until you get it into your hands on how well it's going to look or play. So I think we always go for the greatest print possible that we can get. But if something's faded, if something's got minor issues with it, it, it's almost an added appeal with the grindhouse mentality of the drive-in and what the Mahoning does. We almost want to see all the, you know, imperfections. It's a thrill, but obviously there's a line there. We, (laughs) you want it to be a good presentation as well, but yeah, it's, it's always a balance when it comes to that, you know, I have a spooky clientele because there are people like us mm-hmm. who understand that. And we want to yep. see the film in its original form. So we understand that they're going to be, um, uh, how should I say? They're going to have to be uh, some concessions made knowing that, you know, you're seeing something that's rare. And then you have people who are strolling in who are just not savvy to any of this and aren't, uh, you know, are totally un- not understanding as to why there's three emulsion scratches running down that's the middle of the, the hard part. Yep. That's the hard part is, as Jeff says, people are now conditioned to digital and everything being as pristine as can be. Your television at home is better than anything you could have seen at this, you know, theaters when we were kids. It's just gotten to a point where, you know, uh, that appreciation for the format, the film, the programming, there's a lot that goes and comes with that. I think your guys' model and a lot of nonprofits' model of having this membership program and building a community with it is essential because that that's really what they're buying into is the idea yeah, that oh, this is yeah. this is something rare. Any of our live programming or musical pro- programming presentations always have to be centered around film. You know, yep. it's it's you know we're not going to have a kazoo festival. You know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, now we're, you know, movie comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at the end, at the end of the month, we have on the 27th, on um, Mozart's 268th birthday, we're running Amadeus, and we have F. Murray Abraham coming in conversation. He'll, he'll speak for an hour, and then we'll run the film. Whenever I can do that, I mean, in February, we're doing, uh, we have uh, the producer of Goodfellas, Barbara Dufina, coming, and uh, she'll talk for an hour, and then we'll run Goodfellas, and, um, it, uh, it it adds a little extra something special. But when we do a musical presentation in the, in the early February, we're doing a uh, we have a uh, we do a great cabaret show with several Broadway performers, and it's going to be all the great MGM musical songs. And so you know we, we sell our top ticket price is one hundred and fifteen dollars, you know because the, the the show is costing me ten grand. So it, you have you have to be there, and we always sell out that show, which is nice. We we have. Uh, um, you know, right now, booked for the end of March. I have uh, uh, the festival orchestra coming in, and they're going to be doing an evening of music of John Williams. So I can put a 50-piece orchestra uh, on the stage and, and get an audience for that, you know? So oh, that's God. the kind of thing that gives me that kind of flexibility that a lot of other theaters just don't have. Uh, yeah. You're elevating the culture, the area's culture, everything. I mean, that's what is so inspiring about what you do, and a lot of these indoor houses do is... You know, they find a way to truly make an event an event to really make a point to sell you on that ticket. There's going to be a reason you're going to come out of your house, you know, 
And you guys just are so good at adding that cherry on top. On top of an already gorgeous venue and the format cell, it's uh, it's beautiful. And occasionally you get somebody who puts you know, something up on Facebook and says, well, I don't know why I'd want to go there. I could stay at home and watch it. And I <laughs> said, well, you know what? You can also crack two eggs and you can also make an omelet in the morning. You don't have to go out for breakfast, but you do. All right, why? Because it's just something better about the experience. You go to your local diner. You have you have breakfast. You sit with other people. You enjoy a meal. You listen to conversations. And that's the whole idea. You know, the whole idea of a shared experience, certainly in the movie theater. Last Valentine's Day, we ran Moonstruck. Sold 240 tickets. People were screaming with laughter in the theater. And it almost brought tears to my eyes, you know? It was just exactly what you want the people yeah. to react that way. And then when we were done, as all the women left, we all gave them a rose, and they were all very happy to have it. A little memorable experience. And somebody, because there was snow pack out in front of the theater, somebody actually took the rose, put it in the snow, and then took a shot of the rose, the snow, and the theater behind it. It was just a really kind of a nice moment, you know? You know, so you're doing the right thing, you know, and uh, the audience connects like that. And I'm sure they appreciate it as, as much as uh, it sounds like they do. And of course, there are those times that, you know, I mean, you, you think that you've rediscovered, you know, a perpetual motion and, you know, eight people show up. Yeah. <laughs> you know that all too well. Yeah. <laughs> and then you then you yeah, toss it, the it, weather it on it with us. It's, you never know what you're going to get. You plan for the greatest you know, event in the world and then it pours. And then, and then every once in a while, I mean, we, we, we did a thing called World Cinema Showcase. And for 10 Sundays, we were showing films from around the world. And one of the prints that we showed was uh, John Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. And this thing was in black and white on steroids. It was one of the most beautiful prints I've ever seen on a screen. And it was just lovely. Janice Films had a beautiful 35 print of it, which I think was ran twice. And uh, we were very fortunate to get this. And then the last one we ran from them. Okay, and by the way, we did very, very well with that. We, we had 100 people plus in there for that. Then at the end of the series, I mean, I took a I took a little little walk on the wild side, and I booked in Ivan the Terrible Part One. Yes. Wherever. <laughs> another, <ever. laughs> another beautiful print, you know, for the twelve people that saw it. But you know, hey, I had, I had to take a shot. I really did. That's bragging rights <laughs> right there. Well, I was there. I'm a proud card carrying member of the Barrymore Film Center. <laughs> And I went down for the double feature of the Pink Panther and a shot in the dark. And it was, yeah. let's say under attended, but I'd never had an opportunity in my life to see those on the big screen growing up, loving them on TV and home video. And that was just like the most fun I'd had in a long time. And I was the guy laughing out loud through this, through the whole thing. And uh, it, it's one of those things. I, I know it as a customer and I know it as somebody who works at a theater. Sometimes even if the attendance isn't grand, um, you're giving somebody something really special that might be the only time they ever get a chance in their life to have that experience with that film on the big screen. Sure, and if you walk out of there satisfied, then I've done my job. You it, know? Was, it was great. If you could talk to me months after the event and say that you were pleased, then that makes me happy. And, you know, I mean, now the big question is, which did you enjoy more? Did you enjoy The Pink Panther or Shot in the Dark? I've always liked A Shot in the Dark a little bit more. Me too. And, and what I'll say was, too, uh, everything's better on the big screen. No matter how many times you – if you think you know a film to the point where you can't watch it again, watch it on the big screen, and it's like seeing it for the first time. Peter Sellers is always doing something when he is on screen in The Pink Panther. 
He's not doing yep. anything distracting, but he's always doing something that shows you he is an idiot. And it was just, it was wonderful. <laughs> I never noticed half of what he did in that film. These little tiny gestures and things, but you know, focus just, it's like somebody said about the Three Stooges. The next time you watch a Stooges short, just watch Larry. He's always doing something. Uh, even if Curly is the center of attention, watch Larry. He's he's not wasting his screen time. And Peter <laughs> Sellers is like that in those in the first two Pink Panther movies. So thank you for that opportunity. And also, I uh, wanted to mention that you have an organ uh, down under the uh, the screen. And I was there for a screening of 1941, and you had an organist playing music from Spielberg films. And I thought that was just wonderful. What just before the movie started? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was. That was that was my trademark when I was in business. We had a half a dozen theaters with uh, theater pipe organs in them. Uh, half of them, which I installed, and, you know, my accountant used to look at the books and say, "You know, how much money does this cost you? You're out of your money." We had four staff organists. Can you believe this? Oh. And yet we did a lot of we did a lot of silent films, and we did very very well. People always love the pre-shows. We we do it every Saturday night before the show, and I was actually president of the American Theater Organ Society for four years, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just an added plus, a little live entertainment, and people come in, and uh, it's it's very exciting. It really does, really does add a little something. It's the heart of the theater, actually, and we have a full orchestra pit, and I can, I can tell you, we've, we've put other instruments in there, we've done other things. In fact, we did um, Phantom of the Opera with a 20-piece orchestra. And um, it was it was exciting, and but the organ still really just uh, if you have the right individual. Yeah, and we have a gentleman named Ian Fraser who was a young a young guy, he's uh, 21 years old, and he's really a master of his craft. And he's actually the 20 uh, 23 recipient of the American Theater Organ Society's Young Organist First Place Award, and we're very fortunate to have him. And um, it, look, it costs money, but it's it's worth it. It gives him an opportunity to be a cinema organist. I mean, how many are there? All right, it gives us yeah. an opportunity to showcase a part of film history that really was only around for about a decade, and it also gives us an opportunity to be able to uh, not only entertain an audience before and after the show, but it also allows us to do uh, live theatrical accompaniment to silent films. So it's a win-win for us. That's Again. one of the things I love about the Barrymore since the first time I went is that there's this it, it exudes uh, cla unlike myself, it exudes class <laughs> and respect for film history and, and education without like clobbering you over the head from the from the player piano that's on the second floor to the sort of gallery of, of film history to the stars on the sidewalk from the various, you know, really recognizable names that started in Fort Lee to the tell us about the museum that's there, which I found amazing the first time I went there. Well, I'm going to get to the museum in a second, but there's a there's a book called David O. Selznick's Hollywood. And yet the book starts out where he and his brother, Myron, used to take the ferry, the 125th Street Ferry, from Manhattan to bring their father, Louis Selznick, who had a studio right down the block, World Pictures, and he used to bring him his, his lunch every day. And he talks about coming up from the ferry and walking down Main Street, basically walking right past where the theater is now. And it's just known that, that that history is a part of looking right out my front door. And it was Selznick who said there are only two kinds of class, first class and no class. And I like to think that we are a first class operation. Oh, absolutely. Oh, so, yeah. That being said, the uh, museum was an integral part of what we wanted to do as part of our educational outreach. 
We are a 501c3 not-for-profit, and we want to make sure that, you know, we give something back to the community. And what we do is every six months, we change the exhibit. The first one was the Barrymore exhibit, you know, because people talk about the Barrymores. They're a little sketchy as to who these people really are in connection with Drew Barrymore. Because when they hear Barrymore, they think right away of Drew Barrymore. And we've been lucky enough, even though Drew's, Drew's never uh, visited us, she did do a wonderful segment on her show about the theater, which was really nice. And awesome. um, people found out a lot about, you know, the fact that the Barrymores were this dynastic family. And, you know, they had their oranges, uh, origins in Fort Lee, which is great. And that lasted for six and a half months. And we closed down. And then we uh, just uh, put up a, a, a new exhibit about four months ago, four and a half months ago. And it's called The Original Power Couple, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Thickford, which made all their first films in Fort Lee as well. Um, and we also have, uh, it's about 2,000 square foot of museum space, and we open that free to the public. So if you come to see the movie, we open up uh, the museum when, whenever we're open for film. People come in, they can tour them. You know, I, I, we, we actually set it up to be a 15 or 20 minute walkthrough. Sometimes people will be in there for an hour. God bless, which is nice. So we have another month to run on that, and then we're opening up with a um, classic poster collection. We'll have window cards, lobby cards. You know, half sheets, British quads, you know, one sheet, three sheets, six sheets, Steel you know, we'll have, art. 60, yeah, we'll have 60, 60 posters. And that's going to run for 12 months because we're going to actually change out some of the posters as time goes on. So the, right. the uh, collection is always fresh. But it's, it's our way of giving back. That's why when you walk in the front door, the museum is right there this way. I'm not making anybody pay for anything. They come in, they see the exhibit, and if they want to stay, they can stay. They buy a mission ticket to see the film. And then, you know, um, in the meantime, as, as you pointed out, we do have the piano playing upstairs. And, it, you know, the, the, the player people are always fascinated by because we, we bought three pianos. I have, a, I have an upright in the orchestra pit, you know, for orchestral presentations. We have an 1899 fully restored Steinway Grand on the uh, stage, and then I've got the uh, I got the Kanabi uh, player upstairs, which uh, entertains a lot of people. So it's um, you know the, the music is very important in everything that we do there because you know film you know uh, we were actually uh, talking I was talking to a friend of mine today about uh, Bernard Herrmann, and uh, we were talking about Psycho, and we were talking about Vertigo, and we were talking about uh, his problems with um, Hitchcock for Topaz, and then it came out that in our discussion, that uh, his favorite score was actually The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Because, you know, at that time, he was a staff composer for 20th Century Fox. And, you know, in reading some of his, you know, uh, biographical background, that was his favorite score, which I think is, is great. But the whole conversation actually came from the fact that if you watch on MeTV, the old Perry Masons, you know, from the late 50s, 57, 58, and 59, he wrote a lot of the background music for the Perry Mason show. Can you can you imagine that? Bernard Herman. But you know, I mean, a buck is a buck is a buck. So it's how funny how often I've I've walked into the theater and I hear the piano playing upstairs and and I know it's there's nobody up there, but every time I think, wow, that piano player is really good. And I, I walk up there and it's like, it's Mrs. You know, the ghost is playing for Mrs. Muir. There's nobody up there. It just, it sounds very natural. <laughs> Well, the key, the key is that it's actually trying to draw you upstairs so you'll see those dedication panels to all the people who are uh, on our walk of fame. 
because when you know when somebody you know is walking the walk of fame and they're looking down at these names and they may not be instantaneously recognizable to everybody who is Frances Marion you know I mean so you'll find out who she was and the, the the films that she wrote and you know why she's so important in cinema history and you know why you know we honor her in Fort Lee uh, she lived there she worked there and she eventually you know wound up being one of the most prolific screenwriters you know in cinema history but you know she you know it's it's a, it's a learning experience and it's and it's a good one and of course you know Sam Goldwyn we all know Sam Goldwyn I, my favorite Sam Goldwyn quote is include me out <laughs> he's such a character but he he's the one who took over the um, Universal Studios when Lemley uh, you know packed up and moved out to California and somebody said, well, if he built the world's largest studio, why would he have done it? I said, because they offered 10,000 acres of free land, now known as Universal City. But at the time, you know, I said, take it, tax-free, it's yours. You know, incorporate your own, you know, municipality. And you can't turn down an offer like that. And they slowly but surely all emigrated out to, you know, uh, California. And yeah. um, it was it was a big blow for, for um, uh, you know, certainly Fort Lee, but... At that point in time, you had uh, people like Oscar Michaud, all right, first uh, great African-American film director who made many of his films in a lot of these studios that were now on a per diem rental basis and uh, made it affordable for him to be able to create some of the great films that he uh, that he made. So um, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. <laughs> and was I, speaking of Fort Lee uh, history, was am I correct in remembering from from those panels that there were once westerns made in Fort Lee? Oh my God, like crazy! You know, yes, I to mean, me the idea of a New Jersey western is just funny. But I guess if it reads on camera, it reads on camera. Well, you know, one of the one of the first great films that was made there was the American Eclair Robin Hood, and why? Because you had you had forests, you had ponds, you had you know stone walls, you know. <laughs> It was the place that uh, people from New York City would go to for location shooting. That's what brought uh, Fort Lee to the forefront. And then, you know, because there was so much opportunity to be able to sh uh, shoot so many different scenes, you know, I mean, before Birth of a Nation, E.W. Griffith uh, shot his film The Battle there. And that was up in Coitsville. I mean, you know, so there you have these huge Civil War battles going on. You had Rambo Saloon. Uh, which, by the way, is preserved by the film, uh, by the Fort Lee Film Commission. Uh, you know, a dozen westerns a month were being made up there uh, because, you know, it uh, the horses were plentiful and uh, it was an opportunity to be able to take advantage of all the dirt roads that you know um, meandered through the town. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see the volume of one and two reelers that were made there. It's estimated over four thousand films were made in Fort Lee, and uh, it's a proud fact. And of course, once yeah. all, all the commerce left, you know, the town suffered greatly because that income was very important. And once it was gone, it was it was it was terribly missed. Yeah. I love your passion for film history and your knowledge of the local history. I mean, clearly you are the perfect person to be in the position because you can convey so much about the love of the area and the importance of the area. A lot of it I learned from listening to Tom Myers. A lot of it I, I learned from listening to Dr. Richie Kazarski, who was, uh, you know, wrote uh, several great books on Fort Lee. You know, one, one, one would be Hollywood on the Hudson. You listen carefully to the people who know more than you. And uh, over the years, you know, all of a sudden, you speak as if you were the one who discovered these facts. When in actuality, you just listened and, and you learned, you know? <laughs> yeah. And hopefully somebody, somebody will listen to this and say, 
I really want to go to Staten Island. The center of this all is all the original studios, all the studio buildings are gone. But the Fort Lee Film Commission in its day did turn around and build several markers, you know, which show you where the Solex studios were or where the original Universal studios were or where the original right. Fox studios were, you know, where Theda Barra first made her great films. Right. And, and and these are, you know, these are very yeah. important people in the annals of filmmaking. And uh, there's a spot right on Main Street where Teddy Arbuckle made Reckless Romeo. And you go there all these years later and the stone wall is still there. <laughs> you know, wow, it, it, yeah, so the buildings are still there. It's quite impressive. So, you know, anybody who wants to come, and Mary Pickford, where she made New York Hat with Lionel Barrymore, some of those buildings are still there. And it's, and it's a real stroll down memory lane. Well, that's the beauty of the trip to the Barrymore, is it's not just a trip to go and see a classic film on a classic format or a unique program or whatever. It is truly an opportunity to get schooled and get knowledge and visit those locations. And for a, a film fan, a movie lover like all of us and everybody listening, what a treat. What a treat. Well, you know, somebody somebody once came to me and said, well, you know, I mean, you know, they, they shot movies in, in North Carolina. I said, they were shooting films like crazy up and down the eastern seaboard. You know, I mean, it's, it's not that that was what made Fort Lee unique. What made Fort Lee unique is because there was such a volume of traffic coming over from the city to shoot location, you know, shots. All right. And to do that Western or to do that epic, or to do that, you know, downtown New York hat type of film. There was so much of that in demand that oh, all of a sudden, a costume shop opened up. And then there was yeah. a prop shop. And then there was, you know, where they were renting horses and buggies. And then next thing you know, a laboratory shot up. And then next thing you know, a studio shot up. And it became the first studio town. Yeah. You know, when people talk about Hollywood, Hollywood is, is an area, I mean, Los Angeles, an area, you know, uh, you know, twice the size of Bergen County, for crying out loud. You know, I, I always enjoyed when they, you know, at the, at the end of MGM film, they would say, Made in Hollywood, USA. No, it was Culver City. It had nothing to do with Hollywood. I, I always <laughs> thought that was kind of weird. I mean, Culver City's not even a part of Los Angeles County. And I'm thinking, I don't know why Culver City ever put up with that. But in Port Lee, everybody was shooting back to back. And it was a community because those that were making films there also lived there. And if they right. didn't live there, they certainly knew the people that were, and it became quite a community of filmmakers and of artists, you know. Yeah. And you get a lot of people who were on the Broadway stage who would come, and they would they would act there, and they would come and go, and it was just a very unique experience. So, and again, because it was a small town, and, you know, it was all very condensed where the studios were, there were 17 active studios. I mean, fairly impressive. These big glass top buildings, you know. Everybody's yeah. feverishly making films. You know, we have that mural on the second floor behind the piano, and it's a beautiful picture of Marion Davies standing there learning her lines. And there's the and there's the the, the orchestra that would uh, play to, to get the actors in the mood. And there's Alan Dwan, and there's this one and that one. It's just it's just such a rich history. And for anybody who wants to come, I you know we'll take you around. We'll show you what we got. I think you'll be impressed. Absolutely. I'm going to uh, turn it over to Jeff if he has any questions, but before I do, I'm sure everybody is curious about your projection booth. Being the only full-time 35mm drive-in, our obsession with the format runs very, very deep. 
We switched to reel to reel in 2015, so we had the ability to work with the major studios and private collectors. I take it you're also reel to reel, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we uh, we have a lovely projectionist. Her name is uh, Dorman Birmingham. Dorman has what, what we like to say she has great hands. She treats films like they're celluloid gold. She yeah. really she really has an affinity, you know, for handling you know uh, films delicately. She loves film. She she, she nurtures film. And uh, yeah, no, we run reel to reel. There is there are no plotters in the building. That being said, we also run our seventy reel to reel, which is not easy. Yes, and which I'm so curious, you know, the undertaking. So what we have to do is we actually have to bring the second operator in to work with her. Um, not just for the looking of the reels, but, you know, it takes twice as long to thread up. And the film reels are very, very, very heavy. And they can actually make that little clip at the end of the spindle jiggle loose. And you know what happens when that clip jiggles loose. You wind up with a print <laughs> on the Yeah. So, Jeff, you know all about that, Okay. So oh, it, yeah. It, you got, yeah, and and, and it, you got you got to keep your eyes on it. And it takes two people, and some of these films are just not the greatest. Ship. Napoleon was. I, I gotta I gotta I gotta say that. But we were in that three days in a row. Now, if I had a like a two week run, which we never really do, but if I did, uh, I actually have a seventy platter that I would bring up, put in the center of the room, and then just uh, you know run the seventy on because it's just too much for one person to keep an eye on. You know. Yeah. And just like the Mahoning projection team, uh, Dorman's a rock star, you know, uh, <laughs> the, legend, the legend runs deep, <laughs> which is great. You want somebody in that position to truly own it. Oh, absolutely. And she's very, very fastidious. And she's also very um, emotionally attached. So when things go wrong, she, she's not amused. But it's, it's, it's um, you, know, <laughs> you, you, you want somebody who cares. You really, really yeah. do. You know, right. and uh, you know, we're very fortunate that we have her. And, uh, you know, because 35 millimeter operators are few and far between. And you know what? I haven't been in a booth. I haven't run 35 in, since 2009. And you know what? Every time I go in there and I see and I see the reels, I get back, oh, you know, maybe I should want to get back in and do this. But let, leave, leave it to the professionals at this stage of my life. You know, it's, yeah. uh, I really don't. Uh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to practice on a print. You know, I mean, I used to have practice when we were teaching the kids how to thread up, but not anymore. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is, you, you leave it up, leave it up to the, uh, the people that you're paying to do the job. So I definitely want to give Jeff the opportunity for any questions, being a classic, uh, operator of both indoor and outdoors. You guys share a, uh, a common ground. So what do you got for me, Jeff? Well, I am, I am fascinated by the story that you've been telling us. I love it. Oh, thank you. A lot of it crisscrosses back and forth with some of the same experiences I've had. The most locations I owned at one time was I had three locations. I had one indoor and two drive-ins at one time that That's I owned. Uh, that That's was right. that was years that that was years ago. But I never had. You know, I'm trying to think, man, what would I have been like with eight or ten locations? And uh, it's a mind blower. I've 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 enjoyed your story so much. Right now. I got to tell you, uh, with 35 millimeter at my drive-in, I'm very happy to just have one location because you're right. You've got to keep an <laughs> eye on everything that's going on. And I don't run now. I have a bad hip right now, so I haven't been running 35 millimeter myself for right. about a year and a half now. 
Before that, I did the majority of it. Now I haven't done much at all the last year and a half or so, but I want to get back into it because I do miss it. Uh, but I do have some great projectionists. I've got some great projectionists myself that I trained uh, before my hip really went bad, and they're doing a great job. So, um, you know. Uh, what a lovely, lovely really, shout-out. What a lovely shout-out. I bet you they deserve every accolade you could possibly get. because It's a very, very, very unique talent. It's also, it's a love. It's not a job. It's, it's, it's a passion. And it's, right. um, and you know, they're, they're, you know, to be a motion picture operator that I don't think there could be anything because, you know, the booth is the Holy of Holies. Everybody oh, yeah. wants to see the projector booth, you know, oh. and, and I, oh. you, you know what I'm saying? No, you should see what, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm crazy about my booth. I mean, the whole drive in in general, but my booth, especially when I go in and the first thing I down, I do is sit down at my desk and I clean stuff off of it because stuff gets piled there over the week or a day or two that I'm not there. First thing I do in is go, I go in and I clean my desk off because I can't stand having crap all over my desk. So, <laughs> so that's just a funny story. And I, I'm not mad at anybody for the stuff being there. It's just that when I go in there, I want some place that I can put my elbows on my desk and not have a bunch of junk sitting there. But yeah, I know what you mean. I'm very particular about the booth. Very particular. The whole thing is, you know, it's all a matter of detail. Everything is detailed when you're projecting to an audience. We're here to entertain. We're here to create memories. We're here to provide the public with an opportunity to something, see something they cannot see anywhere else. And that's why what you do, what we do, is unique and special. And I'm glad that I'm in this community of people like yourselves who understand and appreciate this. And anybody listening, you know, the key here is if you're interested, Ask politely, I'll show, you'll show, you'll show anybody if they ask politely to see the projection booth. And they always, oh, yeah. they always oh. look with great wonder. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we have people roaming in and out of there at all times during the night. And sometimes great. the projectionists get a little bit, not upset, but they get a little bit scratchy because it's like, you know, they're trying to thread projectors and people are walking into them. And, you know, and yeah. it, it, it's a little hairy sometimes. So, we're trying to figure out a way to control it a little bit and and yet still let people come in there. Some of the projection booths over the years, some of the newer constructions actually had the booth walls and made of glass so people could look in. The problem is not only could you look in, but also the light, you know, was too much off the lobby. So, you know, you, you would see it on the screen because it would go through the ports and it would be distracting. You know, there's, yeah. there's got to be a, a, a better way to do it than glass, but it, it's nice that people can, can be a part of that because they want to understand the process and they want to know how that magic is created. And, um, you know, we, we did a, we did a Q and A not too long ago and I actually had an old trailer and I cut up the trailers. And as people walked out, I said, now this is a piece of 35 millimeter film. You thought I handled them, handed them a bar of silver. They went, oh, <laughs> look at this. Look at this. Oh we do God. that as well. We we love doing it for the kiddos. Whenever a kid comes yeah. in, it's, you know, here's the bookmark keepsake, and they'll hold it up to the light. And it really does take that magic to a tangible place, you know. But it's true. For a repertory house or a, a, a cinema that relies on classic formats, that projection booth is is the the heart and soul of of the whole operation. So Absolutely. having people come in truly uh, 
appreciate it and get to see how the the donuts are made i guess you'd say is is really a, a treat and something that we love doing giving folks kind of a, a peek behind the curtain if you will well you know what if we don't do it who will that's right and that's why i love like you said that this is a community and the gift of this podcast is that it has connected us with our community and the people that are so like-minded like us that they are going out on those limbs. They are taking those shots. They are programming the films that, that we all wish we could see. And our mantra is if something cool is going on, you make the effort to go and appreciate it. And we see that every yep. single weekend at the Mahoning. And we know that there will be that crossover of folks that hear this and say, I got to get my butt over to the Barrymore. I got to meet Nelson. <laughs> well, we also have a very, very good team. Our director of administration, Charlene Trotter, she makes sure that our message gets out to everybody. We have a great manager, Andrew Van Valen. He's a he's a he's a he's a rock star, and uh, he's he's very, very gentle and he's very generous with all of our you know all of our team. We certainly have you know we have we have I think at last count seven hundred members. So you know um, you know we got them from the twenty five dollar. You know, senior citizens to the twenty-five hundred dollar life members, and so you know, and he's very, he's very, he's very good with with all of our members and customers. And I love seeing people come back, and I love people who want to talk about movies, and I love people who want to share their experiences. The first movie they ever saw. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, "What was the first movie you ever saw?" I said, "Actually, it was Journey to the Center of the Earth," and it it, it, wow. it developed in me a, a lifelong dream to hop in an airplane and fly to Edinburgh because of that movie. And I finally did it. You know, I mean, so it, it's amazing what film can and does do to you and how it inspires people and how it makes you want, you know, to to even see and do more when it comes to, you know, how can I be entertained? How can I learn? How can I see more? How can I be better? It's a wonderful expression, you know, of, you see, what, the one thing that I always remember to remind people, it's also a business. You know, the artistic element uh, is, is, is really is really great to you know pay attention to that. But it's also we got to make enough money to be able to continue to do this. That's <laughs> so right. I, and, I, and I think ultimately, you know, they, they get the message if you handle the property. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it, it's been it's been a wonderful journey, and if, and if you may pardon the expression, it has been a wonderful life, and it's yeah. been a wonderful life because I've been able to do this. I mean, you know, again, in my early 20s, I decided this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And, you know, almost 50 years later, it was the right decision. I don't regret a day of it. That's right. beautiful. Right. And we should yeah. all be so lucky, you know. And, you know, again, for somebody who had that amazing run, went into their uh, their comfortable place, and then that love of cinema pulled you right back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can't stay away. That love. Also, the borough of Fort Lee, you know, spent a lot of time, effort, money, and I felt a need to, you know, to honor that commitment. And yeah. this is something that we discussed for years, years and years and years and years. And, you know, um, I, I knew I had the tools and I had the background and, I, and, yeah. and the connections. And, you know, why would I make the town go through you know, all this craziness trying to find somebody who could program the films and supervise the museum and the yep. administrative staff. And I mean, this is what I did. And you're right for, there. <laughs> yeah. Destiny, uh, my friend, destiny. Uh, well, before we let you go, why don't you let people know how they can find you and find the Barrymore, whether it's online or physical? 
Well, you know, um, what's nice, if you know where the George Washington Bridge is, we're 300 yards from the bridge. So we're right in the heart of town on Main Street, and you can't miss us. We are a very unique-looking building, and we have a ticker sign, just like Times Square, that tells you what films that we're showing. We have a beautiful, beautiful lobby with a huge video wall, which always shows our upcoming films. So if you pass it, you won't miss it, that's for sure. If you want to access us on the uh, World Wide Web, it's barrymorefilmcenter.com or .org, however you want to look at it. And that gives you our show times. It gives you a history of the theater. gives you a history of Fort Lee, the film town. And it also gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the things that we've been talking about today. I'm very fortunate. I'm very happy. And I'm very, I'm very, and I'm very blessed to know that um, I can take a film that, for example, I've enjoyed and a film that I think that you might have never seen and to be able to take that, that, that wonderful feeling of my first experience seeing that movie and share it with people. And that's what programming is all about. Somebody yep. said, oh, I guess you should only your favorite films. Well, sometimes, no. We have to book for our audiences as well. And sometimes you just have to, as you guys know, sometimes just take a plain old shot in the dark and say, maybe this will work. Maybe, yep. maybe I'll attract a, diff a different audience. You know, I mean, when I when I booked in Pink Flamingos, I didn't know where I was going with that. But, it, you know, we had, we had 80 people show up. I mean, we do Rocky Horror all the time. And we do, we, you know, we get, the, you know, a couple hundred people show up for that each time we do it. So it's, 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 it's worth our time, effort, and trouble. We have not gone too esoteric because you have to develop that audience to want to see more. Want to dig you a little bit You know your audience, deep. yeah. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, and and we're, not, we're not there yet. But I still think popular culture, we still have about three or 4,000 films. I mean, this past year, we probably showed individuals. Because remember, I only showed the film once. Yeah. We probably showed uh, over 300 titles this year. <sighs> not including short films, not including, or, or, you know, independent films, not, you know, not uh, any of the films from our film festivals. Because we do the Thomas Edison Film Festival. We do the Asbury Shorts Film Festival. We do, you know, our own film festival. Uh, which is a short film festival. We get films that are submitted from 80 countries around the world. So, yeah, we don't count those. I'm talking about uh, standard, uh, you know, feature-length films. We've shot over 300 titles. So, we've been busy. Amazing. You are doing God's work. We thank you so much <laughs> for giving us the time out of your, I'm sure, busy schedule. And uh, being that you're on the podcast, it would just be foolish if we didn't mention that we are planning a partnership together, yep. a night at the drive-in at the Barrymore Theater, uh, where you'll be able to come out um, and hang out with me, Jeff, Mark, the Mahoning team, and uh, we're going to do a classic double feature. We haven't chosen our titles yet, which will be a great uh, meeting of the minds. I can't wait for that. But uh, you guys have that to look forward to. I believe we're going to do March, right? Correct. So you guys will be hearing about that. So excited to have you as part of our community, as part of our family, as we like to say. And keep up the great work and everything that you're doing. Gentlemen, thank you for this time. I enjoyed being with you. And it's, um, it's something that, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you all at the UPFC. Or I'm going to take a trip to Pennsylvania and visit you folks. Love it. That Come on. Great. Sounds yep. good. You're an inspiration to us all. And on that note, Jeff, take it away, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field. And most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night and God bless you.